I know none of you all have ever wrestled with, but confession time, I definitely have, and that is the, the problem of pride. We're growing up in a time in which, when you think about it, people have their own Facebook page about who? About themselves. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember a place that used to be called MySpace. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, all of these things basically communicating the same idea and that it's all about me, all me, all the time. And yet, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Proverbs. We're going to spend just a moment there before we jump into the meat of our text. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, the Bible says, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Skip on down to Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. In the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs chapter 6, probably one of the, the best known of all these passages talking about six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination unto him. You notice the very first one is what? A proud look. So even though society is telling us it's all about you, and, and you know we think, oh man, we, we really need to be affirmed, and we want people to like us and to click that like button, the Bible says, no, it's not all about you. It's all about him. And we need to learn humility. The meat of our text is going to come from Matthew chapter 5, so I encourage you to open your Bibles to that area. We're going to spend quite a bit of time there. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Jesus here teaching probably what most consider to be one of his most famous sermons. Seeing the multitude, verse 1, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated with his disciples came to him and they... Then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These are familiar words to everybody probably in this room, but I want to point out what hopefully is obvious, and that is these aren't just little suggestions. Amen? These are things that we are supposed to incorporate into our life. Now, as you listen to the words of Jesus, ask yourself this question. What's the opposite of a blessing? Biblically speaking, it would be a curse, right? So as he's uttering these phrases, you've got this group of people who is sitting at his feet, who is going to know the difference between a blessing and a curse. And again, as you look at these values, as you look at what he's saying, these central tenets, basically these are things that we should be patterning our lives over. But here's the catch. I'm not sure that we have always read these correctly. And sometimes those passages that are most familiar to us are, are sometimes the ones that maybe we don't really think about and study and meditate on. Therefore, we kind of let them slide. Because I suspect most everybody in this room has heard a sermon about meekness meaning what? 
weakness. Or, or, or we say, you know, if that person, if they're meek, it's, it's not really weak, but blah, blah, blah. Tonight I want to hit the reset button on the way you look at this passage. I want you to start looking at that word in a totally different way because I think each and every one of us, we're called to be this, but maybe we don't quite understand what it means. Most of you in here have either ridden off horses, fed horses, cleaned up after horses. Some of you have fallen off of horses. They are amazing animals. Lots and lots of power. You run up to, uh, to Louisville, Kentucky, first weekend in May, you can see lots and lots of speed. Think about it for just a moment. A horse that has never been broken is not real useful to you, is it? And by that I mean, it's not like you can just jump on its back and, and do what you want to do, go where you want to go. Before that horse can be useful to you, it's got to have its spirit broken. It's got to be tamed by man. So here you've got this animal that until you break it, it's going to rebel, it's going to kick, it's going to do all kinds of things, basically trying to keep its own will. It don't want you on the back. And yet, once you finally do tame that animal, what have you got? Did it lose its strength? No. It still possesses all of its strength, but now what it's done is it's allowing you to be in control. And I think that's the picture here that Jesus is trying to paint. Basically, a a horse that has been broken is going to now allow that trainer to use all of its talents, its energy, its speed to get the job done. If we go back and we look at the original text, in the Beatitudes there, Jesus actually uttered the word praise. Blessed are the praise. Now, what does that mean? If you look up the actual definition, what he's saying is, blessed are the ones who would calm or tame an animal. But blessed are the ones who are basically controlled by the hand. Now, why would he say that? Why why would he use this phraseology? I mean, he's teaching a bunch of Jews. They know the difference between a blessing and a curse. And yet he says, blessed are the the prayers, the the ones that are willing to to be subject to the hand. I'll tell you why. Because when you stop and you think about our lives and what it really means to be a Christian... I think sometimes we're still rebelling just like that unbroken horse. Sometimes we need to be reminded that ultimately we belong to Him. And we need to get rid of our own spirit and instead we need to use and harness our strength for Him. Think about it. How long will you continue to kick and rebel against what you know you should be doing? Because again, here's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who will allow that hand to tame or control you. Go back and look. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, let's put this in context so that we all understand exactly kind of where he's at. Turn over in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 27, and let's take a look at why this would have been a big deal to those people. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, Moses here, he is talking about what's going to happen when they enter into the promised land. They're given the commands to go to divide, and half of them are going to go up to the top of Mount Ebal. And from the top of that mountain, they are going to proclaim the curses that will fall on them if they do unjustly, if they do things that are wrong, if they move a landmark, or if they, they cheat against their neighbor. The other half's going to go to the top of Mount Gerizim, and what you're looking at on the screen, this is an actual picture of it there today. So you can just envision half of these people on one side, half of them on the other, and they're, they're quite literally almost echoing each other the blessings and the curses that are going to fall on them depending on their own behavior. And so here's Jesus. He starts this sermon by saying, blessed are the, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. According to J.W. McGarvey, he said, the poor in spirit are those who feel a deep sense of spiritual destitution, comprehend their nothingness before God. In essence, poverty of spirit is the opposite of pride. The way I like to think of it is this. Being poor in spirit basically means we're willing to empty ourselves out of ourselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, here's where I think maybe, just maybe, we get the Beatitudes wrong. I think that they are actually a building scenario. In other words, blessed are these who are able to pour themselves out, and then after having done that, then we're going to look at the second scenario. Blessed are those who mourn. But sometimes what we do, we just read them individually. Oh, yeah, okay. What a blessed are the poor in spirit. Basically, he's saying, look, you got to get rid of your pride and stop trying to do it your way. At the end of the day, it's not about what you want to do. It's about are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to get on that narrow way? Remember last week I, I brought up Matthew chapter 7, and I pointed out, there is a narrow gate, but in order to get through that narrow gate, you got to be on the narrow path. You know, yes, there are folks who are going to get to that narrow gate, but remember Jesus said there are a lot of people on the broad way, meaning not everybody's going to heaven. In order to get through that narrow gate, you got to be on that narrow path. Number two. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I don't know how many times I've heard people talking about this in terms of grief. Like, for instance, somebody who maybe lost a loved one. I don't think that's what he's really talking about right here. Because if you go back and you look at the original text and you look at the series here that Jesus is painting, 
First, he says, hey, blessed are those that are willing to empty themselves. And oh, by the way, after you empty yourself, you know what you're going to see spread out all in front of you? You're going to see all of the, the sin and the muck and the mire that you have been doing your entire life. And what should that make you do? That should prick your heart. That, that should produce godly sorrow. That should cause repentance. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, having realized what we've done to God, we're absolutely heartsick. So, you guys know, I've had a couple of you say, man, every Wednesday night, I know I'm going to get a good dose of my toes stepped on. Let, let me just go ahead and start crunching right now. When is the last time that you actually wept over your sins? See, church, I, I think sometimes we grow callous to sin. We, we don't think it's all that big a deal. Oh, everybody does it. And yet, what we should be doing, if we really think about this in the way we're supposed to, we should be weeping because you realize what it has done to Christ, what it has done to our relationship with God. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Then blessed are those who are, are, are heartsick, who mourn over what they've done. He follows that up with, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who were once wild, but they're willing to be tamed. That they're willing to have the hand of God now shape the direction of their life. They're willing to give up their spirit for His. And that's why I use the word broken. Because again, most of you in here probably have dealt with horses enough that you realize that's what this is all about. Take a look, Luke chapter 22, verse 42. To me, this is the picture of meekness right here. Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Jesus knelt down and he prayed saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If you ever want a snapshot of meekness. There it is. Because this is the Son of God. He could have called 10,000 angels and been done with it. He could have run off and hid, and yet here he is harnessing all of his strength, all of his might, and he's doing the will of the Father. That's where we have to get to. To that point where even though that new Marvel Comics thing is coming out, we realize, you know what, it's got a bunch of trash in it. I don't, I don't need to be watching that. And, and even though my spouse hasn't been nice to me, I'm going to love them because I'm commanded to do so. And even though somebody in the congregation really, really upset me and, and it's caused friction, I'm going to forgive them because that's what I'm commanded to do. I'm going to be broken for him. I'm going to let God put his hand over my life. As you think about that, consider for just a minute, here you got this, this meek man, and yet 
I don't think anybody in this room would consider him weak by any means. So when you hear that word meek from this day forward, I don't want you thinking about weak. What I want you to think about is is strength under control. Something that has been tamed. Something that has been broken. Kind of like a shepherd that is watching out over everything. If I were to ask you guys, how many of you in here are willing to be shepherded? Now, maybe a better question would be, how many of you in here make the shepherd's jobs easy? There's some folks, man, they're sheep, all they just want to do is just eat and maybe drink a little bit. Then you got some sheep that what they really want to do is just wander off over here and what does the shepherd have to do? shepherd has to kind of go get them and bring them back. And then they bring them back for a little while, and he wants to wander off over here. How many of you in this room truly are willing to submit yourself, to be shepherded? Now, I started this lesson by talking to you about the fact that pride is a pretty big issue. Folks, I think it's at the root of a whole lot of stuff. I'm one of those really twisted guys that thinks... The whole self-esteem thing, deep down, that's really about pride. Somebody says, oh, you know, my daughter, she doesn't have enough self-esteem. Okay, wait a sec, time out. So what you're saying is when she looks in the mirror, she's not content with what God gave her, and she really thinks she ought to be prettier. You know what that is? That's pride. Or, Or the person who thinks they really ought to have a higher paying job because after all, they've done X, Y. Again, what is that? That's pride. We know it goes on out there. The problem is, too, I think sometimes we bring it in here. And, and sometimes instead of being just a, a good sheep, worshiping and honoring God, what do we do? We make the shepherd's job a whole lot harder. I told you guys we're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 5. Now flip over to Psalm chapter 23. Psalm chapter 23, because again, this is one of those passages that I think if you dive into it deeply, what you're going to realize is again, maybe maybe we missed a little something on it. Let me share with you what I mean. Matthew chapter, or Psalm chapter 23, probably the most familiar of all the Psalms. This may be one of the first things you memorized when you were little. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil For thou art with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is probably one of the most beloved, favorite psalms out there. In fact, I suspect most of you have probably heard this psalm read at someone's funeral, maybe as words of comfort to somebody who's going through a rough time. And yet, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop and think about where does it actually lie in the text? 
Because let me remind everybody in this room, were there chapters and verses when the Bible was originally penned? The answer is no. In fact, if I were wanting you to turn to, say, Psalm chapter 22, and I was a, a Jewish, say, uh, one of the leaders in the Jewish religion, I would say, turn to, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you know what they would turn to? What we call Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm chapter 22. Obviously, falls right before 23. What I want you to do tonight, though, is I want you to remember there were no chapters and verses. And let's take a little bit closer inspection of chapter 22. How it fits into 23. And why all this has to do with you and the idea of pride. Take a look. Verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, from my words and my groaning? If that doesn't sound familiar to you, let me very gently tell you, you need to be spending more time in the Word. Because those are the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, take a look at this. Verse 7. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue him. Let Him deliver him since He delights in him. That, that sound familiar? Verse 12, that same psalm. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Why, why would your bones be out of joint? Maybe because I'm nailed to a cross. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a posture. My tongue clings to my jaws. What was one of the other sayings that Jesus said from the cross? I thirst. Says, you have brought me to the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. The Jews would refer to the Gentiles as dogs, which means anybody who was a Roman, by definition, they were considered a dog. He says, the dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Okay, wait a second. We know, according to the text, Jesus didn't have any of his bones broken, right? But you remember the two that were with him. They came, they basically took what we would call a lead pipe, and they broke the femurs of those guys. Why? So that they couldn't stand up and get rid of the deadly gases building up in their lungs. Basically, by breaking the legs, it meant you were going to die quicker from asphyxiation. And yet, you remember that? That didn't happen with Jesus. Instead, with Jesus, they took a spear and they pierced His side. Blood, water coming forth. He says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. 
my strength, hasten to help me, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth. I just read to you what most people call the psalm of Christ's crucifixion. Now, with that firmly embedded in your mind, take a look at Psalm 23 again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There are many scholars who would say that Psalm 23 is actually a continuation of Psalm 22. And that when he's talking about, you prepare a table before me in the place of my enemies, you you anoint my head with oil, that he's talking about Jesus there being that lead person. He's talking about his crucifixion. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, the position of the psalm is worthy of notice. It follows the 22nd, which is particularly the psalm of the cross. He says, there are no green pastures, no still waters on the other side of the 22nd psalm. It is only after we've read, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, that we come to, the Lord is my shepherd. He says, we must, by experience, know the value of bloodshedding, see the sword awakened against the shepherd, before we shall truly be able to know the sweetness of the good shepherd's care. This whole mentality of shepherding was extremely meaningful to these people. I realize in Winchester, Tennessee, it's not all that common for us, right? You don't drive down the road and see a whole bunch of sheep farms. What we've got, we got cows. We got corn, we got soybeans, Occasionally, we may have some pigs and other things, but not that many sheep. Now, you go somewhere like Ireland, New Zealand, man, they have sheep like we have cows. And the same would have been said for this time in this era. They would have been very, very familiar with this concept of shepherding. By the way, you ever thought about the fact that God could have used any animal he wanted to designate us. He could have called us eagles. He could have called us golden retrievers. Notice I said that, not poodles. He could have called us anything, right? And yet, interesting, we're referred to as sheep. Now, for those of you who aren't real familiar with sheep, let me give you just a a real quick sheep 101 course, all right? First thing you need to know Sheep are defenseless. They don't have like fangs and claws and poison. They're pretty wimpy critters. In fact, number two, they're ignorant. They're not the sharpest tool in the drawer. Number three, they're very, very needy. They actually need somebody to kind of get them in the right place. Otherwise, they'll wander into a fence, stick their head in, and they may be there for a long, long time. They're very easily frightened. 
They're oftentimes very wayward. And I've been told that if you don't shear off the wool of a sheep and it falls over, it will be so heavy that it can't right itself up. So, I mean, think about that for just a moment. These are, for lack of better words, dumb animals. And yet, God's referring to us as sheep. So, congratulations tonight. (laughs) You're a sheep. Now, here's the thing. Sin makes a sheep think that it's a wolf. What does that mean? Well, everybody here knows what wolves are like, right? Wolves are kind of at the top of the predatory chain. They think they can do it themselves. Sin makes a sheep think that it can survive on its own, that it doesn't need anything, that it doesn't need shepherding. In fact, the attitude of that wolf, I can make it. I don't need God. Sin makes a sheep think it's a wolf. And yet, this psalmist is telling you, we desperately need a shepherd. Not just any shepherd, we need the good shepherd. Isn't it interesting how over and over in the Bible, God patterns the home after the church, after heaven. And so we get this picture of a father being the shepherd of his home, the elders being the shepherds in the the local congregation, and God being the good shepherd. And yet, we got people who are growing up thinking, I don't need no shepherd. I'm a wolf. I'm good enough on my own. I can do it. I I don't need need dad telling me what to do, and I certainly don't need those guys at, at, at church telling me what to do. Friends, I don't think the 23rd Psalm was all about having an easy life. In fact, if you really look at it, He talks about, you prepare a table before me, where? Did did he put it out in a nice place, you know, picnic? No, he put it in the presence of his enemies. Why? Because I think sometimes we need to remind, be reminded that God's got this under control. And there's people in this room right now, you're going through some some struggles in your life, you're going through some trials in your life, and it feels like you are surrounded by unchristian people who are battering you, and you flip on the news, and it's unchristian people who are constantly berating you, and you're just like, come on, what, what, can't catch a break. And yet, here's what God is telling you, sit down and eat. I got this. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Take a look at the pronouns for just a minute. It starts out with he, he, he. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Basically, David is trying to tell you, look, you can't do this by yourself because you're a sheep. And that's why I believe, honestly, this this whole shepherd metaphor was such a big deal was because David is trying to communicate the fact that, hey, you can't do this by yourself. You need God. And so here's the picture that I get when I read that. 
I see this sheep wandering up to a fence, and he's telling the sheep on the other side, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's almost like he, he's bragging because he's the one who provides the green pastures. He's the one that leads me beside the still waters. It's only those who understand and have been redeemed by what was mentioned in Psalm 22 that they can honestly say, the Lord is my shepherd. Only somebody who understands, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, can truly appreciate, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But what does this all hinge around? It all hinge around... It all hinges around you being willing to humble yourself. You being willing to have that shepherd lead you instead of you wandering off. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. This is one of those things that I I don't think people outside of the church really get. And I, I bet I've heard hundreds and hundreds of members of the church say, I don't see how you can get through something like that without having a faith in God. You know what what they're ultimately saying is, that gives you peace and comfort. He leads me beside the still waters. Only God can give you that peace that we so desperately crave. I, I put this in here just because I want to remind both the fathers in the home the elders in the church, we have jobs. We are to shepherd our family, shepherd the flock. We don't need to be found sleeping. The Lord is my shepherd. If you are not a Christian here tonight, you need to understand you can't say that because it was only because of the the good shepherd that he allowed that spotless sacrifice that we can have that peace. Psalm 22, Jesus goes through a scourging. He suffered. He goes through that crown of thorns. So here we find Psalm 23. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, watch this. All of a sudden, the pronouns change. And it says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It says, I I will fear no evil. Why, Why won't you fear? Not because of me, but because of my shepherd. Because of you. Over and over and over, here's what's happening. It's changing to this point, reminding you and me, hey, do this alone. It's about God. So the first part of Psalm 23, we see this, you do this, or he does this, he does this, he does this. And then all of a sudden, here's what I picture in my mind. I picture that sheep leaving the fence, turning back to his shepherd, and now what's he doing? He's affirming the characteristics of his shepherd. 
says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Uh, let me make sure everybody in here understands, this doesn't mean that everything's going to be rosy. This doesn't mean that you're not going to have moments of, of anxiety. What it should mean is, when all of that stuff hits you, you still have the calm and the peace of mind to know it's okay because God's got this. I don't need to go back to my old unbroken ways. I don't need to, to get my will up and do what I want to do. I need to just allow his hand to rule my life. I just need to be the one who is willing to be weak, meek and led. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If I were to ask you tonight, who is responsible for the goodness and mercy? It's not I will achieve goodness and mercy, or I will attain goodness and mercy, or I will earn it, but rather, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. John chapter 14, let me leave you guys with this passage to think about. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Three I statements. I shall not want. I will fear no evil. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Somebody says, Brad, that sounds all nice and good and your cute little sermon and all, but you don't understand. I, I don't have everything I need. You, you just read this psalm where it talks about, I, I shall not want, but I don't, my car's broken down. And folks, your car being broke down may be exactly where God wants you right now to give him the most glory. How are you going to act? with that broken down car? Are you going to kick and rebel? Are you going to get mad at somebody? Or are you going to be meek and allow him to control your life? You say, well, you, you don't understand, Brad. Sister so-and-so, she says some really mean things about me. Again, are you going to kick and rebel? Are you going to allow the hand of God to lead your life? Are you going to basically be that, that unbroken horse that's not really useful for anything? Are you going to humble yourself? Because at the end of the day, here's a news flash. It's not all about you or me. It's about the shepherd. Every single one of us in this room, we're going to walk through that valley of the shadow of death. Are we not? Everybody's going to die Here's the beautiful part. That good shepherd is trying to prepare each one of us for that day. Pride is a hard one. It's hard because deep down we want to take care of ourselves. If you're going to beat this thing, what you've got to do is avert your eyes off of yourself and avert it towards the cross. If I could recommend one thing in this group of parents and grandparents, please, 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 
Make sure your children do not grow up as the selfie generation. And by that I mean this. When a child is taking 50 or 60 pictures of themselves a day to get that perfect one to put out on social media, they may have the wrong priorities in life. They may not have been broken enough to have the Lord lead them in the direction He wants them to go. I hope and I pray that you have gained a little something from it, and I hope and I pray that over the next week you will look at your life and ask yourself humbly, do I have too much pride? Am I really allowing God to tame me, to direct me?